All right, please come on in and find a seat, and we will get started with our second of six sessions in Making Peace, for which you need to have some notes, and the guys I know were passing them out as folks came in, and the notes you received last week, if you remembered to bring them back, those are the notes for the entire six weeks. But if you forgot, we've got plenty. So over here, Carl has some. If you need some over on this side, get his attention. And then Daniel has some over here, if anybody needs. Copy of the notes. Very good. Good work, guys. And we will eventually get to page eight for our second session. Welcome one and all. I want to remind you, after this series is over, what's going to be happening. We're going to have, beginning on June the 12th, during this hour, our second hour each Sunday, for 12 weeks, for the entire summer, we're going to have four classes going on. One of those will be for our young adults, college and career age, our Crossroads class, uh, and they'll be meeting in a classroom. We're also going to have a marriage class, and we intended to have a young married class and an older married class, but we, those are both very sizable groups, and we don't have uh, classrooms here that will accommodate either of those separately. So we're putting them both together in this room, uh, second hour starting June the 12th. However, if you're in the young married category, you'll be in your small group at round tables that'll be set up in here with uh, young marrieds and home builders, sounds better than older marrieds, but uh, home builders will be at a table with peers as, as well. So we'll have the marriage class in here. Then meanwhile, in we believe in the kids' zone because we think we will need a larger than classroom size space for this as well, and that's for our senior saints, 60 and above. Senior servants, we're actually calling that, that class. And then we'll have a class on the book of Ephesians, and uh, Brother Paul McKenzie is going to be leading that. So Crossroads, Bob Fight will be leading that. The marriage classes, pastors Larry and Rich and uh, Julie and Tracy will be leading those. And then the senior uh, servants class, Dr. Combs and I will be tag teaming on, on doing that. And then, as I mentioned, Paul's going to be doing Ephesians. So just keep that in mind, uh, those four classes going on for the entirety of the summer starting on June the 12th. Today is our second session in the Making Peace class. And on page 6 of the notes, we define conflict this way. It's a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. A difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. All right, so you've got a conflict because of a difference of opinion, uh, or, opinion or purpose. So then the question is, how are you going to solve that? We've got the conflict, what are, we going to, what are we going to do about it? And I suggest that you can solve a conflict two ways. You can do it by coercion or concession. This is not on page eight. In fact, what I'm saying here isn't anywhere. And after I get done talking about it, you'll say, now I understand why it's not anywhere. <laughs> it doesn't deserve to be anywhere. But this is just setting context for what we'll be looking at on page eight. But you've got the conflict, this difference of opinion or purpose. Now, what am I going to do about it? And two ways to go about it, I think, coercion or concession. So to coerce a solution requires, means you must have power 
in order to uh, impose that, that solution. So you've got to have the power to impose it if you're going to coerce it. And you should have not only the power, but you should have the authority. Now, power and authority are not the same thing. People don't, we use those synonymously a lot of times, but they're not the same. Power is the ability to impose your will upon someone else in the case of inter, uh, interpersonal relationships. Power is the ability. But authority is the right, that is, you're authorized. So when you think of authority, think of authorization. And proper, the proper exercise of power is also power that is authorized. But of course, we know people can have power that's not authorized, and they can use it in an unauthorized way. So somebody with a gun who robs you, seeking to rob you, they've got power, they've got a gun, they can impose their will. They can coerce you to do something. But they don't have the authority, they don't have the authorization to, to do that. So power and authority are quite different things. Of course, government, anybody in, in power, a position of power, can abuse that power by going over their authority, going outside their authority. So power is the ability to compel compliance. Authority is the right to compel compliance. As a parent, you, know, you have the power over your child, especially when they're smaller. You have the power to compel. You also have the right to compel. But it's a beautiful thing when those who can coerce are willing to concede. You have the power to make somebody do something, but you also have the humility and you also have the larger vision for what it is you're trying to accomplish in that person's life so that there are times when you're willing to, to concede. So I suggest you, in your thinking, make those distinctions. You know, we've got a conflict, we've got this difference, we can coerce or we can concede. To coerce requires that I have power. If I have power, I should also have authorization to exercise that power. But even if I have both, it's a beautiful thing when those who could coerce are willing to, to concede. But then that raises the question, how do I know when to do that? How do I know when to coerce or to con concede? And it gets, you know, complicated uh, as a parent when you have to decide, am I going to enforce this thing on my child? I have the power to do this. I have the authority to do this. But should I do this? Can I, can I back off? So, so how do I know the difference between the two? Well, one way to think about this is think about the requirements that you're making for whoever it is, whether it's a parent-child relationship, whether it's a manager-employee relationship, whenever you have an authority-subject relationship, you have someone in, in a position of authority and you have someone under them, then you have the possibility with this. And those who are in that position of authority need to think about whether or not the, the rules, the requirements that they are making are God's requirements or their, their, their requirements. Is this something that is, is going to make this person better in terms of their reflection of the character of God, or is this just something that I like and I prefer? And if it's something that 
affects their relationship with God and their reflection of the character of God, then that's something that you want to impress upon the person, especially parents to children. But if it's just something that you like and you prefer, and it's causing difficulty, then you can at least consider conceding on that. It doesn't have to be done that way. So too many of us, I think, uh, I know, we get caught up into things that we believe should be just so, and they don't have to be just so. I mean, I, believe me, I've got all kinds of things as I, uh, you know, as I lead a church and a fairly, you know, middle-sized organization, and there are all kinds of things that I have preferences on and the way I think things ought to go and all of that. But you have to, I have to make choices, and I'm certainly not claiming I always make the choices rightly, but I think about it. I have to think about it. When is this something that we, I need to press, or is it something that I need to back off and, and concede and let others do it the way they want to do it? Is this just my preference, or is this a conviction, to put it another way? Is this something that relates to the Lord and a reflection of His character or a convenience for me? And there are all kinds of areas like that. There are all kinds of things that we have manufactured uh, in order to make things run, in order to, to make things operate, to make things easier. And so when I say we manufactured them, I don't mean that's a bad thing. They may be very good things. They're necessary to have house rules in order for uh, things to move forward. If you run a home, and like us, you know, we had four people in our home uh, for a period of time. We actually had six people in our home for a period of time. Some of you know we raised a couple of nephews in addition to our, our daughters. And so we had, you know, our home had six people in it. Um, and four of those were big bodies at the time. We have one and a half baths. You have to have house rules for this, right? And so there's all kinds of th things could go, could go haywire. But that's in a, an authority-submission relationship. What about in a peer-to-peer -peer relationship? In both of those, and in all things, as I said in the first hour today, the goal is always to glorify God. Now, that's a churchy thing to say. That's a thing pastors are supposed to say. That's a thing you say. That's a thing your kids say. When they come out of Sunday school, and they say, you know, what they talk about, and your child says, God. You go, can you help me out here a little more? Can you be a little more specific? You know, it's like uh, Calvin Coolidge. I told you guys before, he was called Silent Cal. President Calvin Coolidge, Silent Cal. And his wife, they, he and his wife were regular churchgoers, but his wife couldn't go one Sunday, so... Cal went by himself, and he was just a man of few words. That's why they call him Silent Cal, and he comes home from church, and she says, how was church? He says, fine. How was the pastor's sermon? Good. What did he preach on? Sin. What did he say about it? He's against it. <laughs> so, maybe you got that out of my sermon today. We're against sin. But, you know, our kids learn the, the churchy things to say and the right answers. We all do, right? So what am I supposed to do? Glorify God. If you say glorify God, you've got a 50-50 shot of, of being right in church. But there's, you know, here I am saying it. The goal in all of this, as I, you know, try to think about, and you try to think about, do I coerce? Do I concede? 
Is this uh, just a preference? Is this a conviction? Is this helping this other person become more attuned to God? Or is it just a convenience for me? As I think about all those things, I'm saying that we want to glorify God, but then we've got to remind ourselves, as I often do, and I'm going to do again here, what it is that glorifying God means, biblically. So I want to take some time to, to think about that. We want to glorify God in all of our relationships. You see that in the middle of page 8. We want to do that. We want to glorify God in all our relationships. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches we want to glorify God in everything we do. So then it's incumbent upon us to have some idea of what we mean by glorifying God, if that's the case. You see in the middle of page 8, we have 1 Corinthians 10.31 listed there for you. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Well, if we just you know, can apply that to our relationships, it will help us immensely with the conflict that we, that we all face. But let's try to break it down a little bit. Whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So what is this glory of God thing? Uh, a f- working definition of the glory of God is the display of His character. To glorify God means to display His character. A related term to the English term glorify is praise. And so we praise God when His character is displayed. We acknowledge it. We praise it. So we sing praise to God for who He is. We have, a, we have a, a song called the doxology. Doxa is the Greek word in your New Testament for, for glory or praise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him. All. That's why it's all full of praise. That's why it's called the doxology because doxa means praise, glory, glorify. And so to, to glorify God means to display His character. So now, if I'm in a relationship, to apply that now interpersonally, In order to glorify God, it means I need to display the character of God in this relationship. So something comes up in this relationship. My desire is that the character of God be displayed by me and by the the other party. And it may be that either or both of us need to make adjustments so that we more accurately do that. So 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all in a way that displays the character of God. Now, where does this eating and drinking thing come from? Why why does it say that? Well, the first word there you see in 1 Corinthians 10.31 is so. Some translations say, therefore. And what it's doing is it's connecting Verse 31 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to what precedes it. So, or therefore, well, what precedes it? Well, there's chapter 10, but there's also chapter 9 and chapter 8. And chapters 8, 9, and 10 are all a three-chapter section that are about that. And chapter 10 and verse 31 is summarizing what's been talked about in 8, 9, and 10. So remind yourself a little bit what was going on in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. You go back to chapter 8, and you remember that at, in the very first verse, 
Paul, who wrote it, says now about food that has been sacrificed to idols. And that's what it says, now about food that has been sacrificed to idols. And then it has a colon. So this is the heading, now I'm going to address it. In the NIV, it has a colon. And then he, he starts to address it. Now, if you were to turn back to chapter 7, um, you would see the first line in chapter 7 and verse 1 in the NIV says, now about the matters you wrote about, colon. And then he starts with a matter. And in chapter 7, that matter is marriage, divorce, remarriage. So the Corinthians had written to Paul, and they had said, Paul, I'm paraphrasing, I haven't seen the Corinthians letter, I've only seen Paul's response, but based on his response, this is what they said. We're a wreck. We have no idea what we're doing. We need help. And so help us with these matters. And one of the matters was marriage, divorce, remarriage. And he starts to address it in chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, he says, now about food service. So it's like a checklist. We got the marriage, divorce, remarriage. All right, I covered that in chapter 7. Now in chapter 8, food that's been sacrificed to idols. And he's going to deal with that for three chapters. And then in chapter 11, he gives an illustration of how far off the mark they are from seeing this need to glorify God and display the character of God so that they can defer to one another. Because he talks about their observance of the Lord's table, you remember, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and how some would get drunk at the Lord's table, and they couldn't wait for one another to get involved in what was called the love feast. They had to you know, knock each other out of the way. So you talk about no deference. You talk about being a mess. Whenever I want to feel better about our church, I read 1 Corinthians. And I think, man, we got a great church. Terrific. <laughs> and then you come to chapter 12, now about spiritual gifts. So they're writing to him and going, we were a mess with that too. We got people getting up and prophesying, and we got people speaking in tongues, and we got them all doing it at the same time, and who's supposed to do it, and how many are supposed to do it, and who's got the gift, who doesn't have it, you know, all of that. 12, 13, and 14. He's, he's dealing with that. So they wrote to him about some problems. Um, that starts in chapter 7. Now, what about chapters 1 through 6 of 1 Corinthians? Well, he addressed problems there too, divisions within the church, sin that in chapter 5 that's not being addressed, very, very overt sin, and it's not being addressed. He says you must address this. And divisions within the church where people have their favorite preacher, some are of Peter, some are of Paul, some are of Apollos, some are of Christ. Do you guys remember all that? Well, where did he get all that? And he got all of that from some snitches in the church named from the household of Chloe. Because chapter 1 in verse 10 or 11 says, I have heard from some in the household of Chloe so Paul throws Chloe and household under the bus, <laughs> that there are divisions among you. And then he starts talking about all the ways these divisions manifest themselves. And then in chapter 7 and verse 1, now about the things you wrote about. So he's got information from Chloe's household. He's got the things they wrote about. When he comes to chapter 8, now about food that has been sacrificed to idols, and, and what about it? You remember in chapter 8, he says, 
Again, I'm paraphrasing. But he says, uh, look, when the animal has been killed, the meat is just meat. I know it's just meat. Many of you know it's just meat. And if all of us know it's just dead meat, and we like the dead meat, we can cook it and we can eat it. And everything's good. But not everybody knows this. Do you remember he says that? You know, in the King James, in that chapter, it says, knowledge puffs up. The idea is, you know, I can know that, and I can be right about that. And Paul can know that, that it's just meat, and he's right about that. But he says, knowledge can puff up. You can use that knowledge, and you can impose that on somebody who's got a weaker conscience. They don't know that. And they're going to be harmed by you doing this. So don't use your knowledge in a way that harms somebody else. Instead, rather than have what you know to be true govern the day, Allow love to govern the day. And he says, so because I, because I love my brother or sister, then I'm going to do what's in their best interest. Even I know it's just meat. And even though I like the meat, I won't eat the meat if it harms my brother or sister. Because I love them. Love, working definition of love, is doing what's in the best interest of another. So do what's in their best interest. And if that means giving stuff up, give stuff up. And if it means giving up the meat, give up the meat. And then he goes into chapter 9, and he talks about his own ministry and how he gives stuff up. So he says there a few times, but I did not use this right in chapter 9. I have the right to do certain things. I have the right to receive pay, he says, for what I'm doing. I've chosen not to do that so it won't cause a problem. Read chapter 9, that's what he says. I have the right to take a believing wife with me along on my journeys, but I've chosen not to do that for the sake of, sake of the, my ministry. It's a perfectly fine thing to do, but I've chosen not to do it. I've just got these personal things that I have put aside, sacrificed, that are okay for me to do, and it would be okay for you to eat the meat because it's just meat, but I do it for a greater cause. And in doing that, I'm displaying the character of God. When you, love, when you love, you're displaying the character of God, true? And so he's calling on us to do that, to care more about other people than we care about our own convenience. And he's already talked about these selfish Corinthians in chapter 6 and verses 12 and 13. Chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, and he says, some of you, if you were to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12, you would see this is in quotation marks. Uh, I, have, I have the right to do all things. I can do all things. It's translated variously, but it's in quotes. And the idea is this is the Corinthians making the claim, I have the liberty to do all things because I'm in Christ. So I've got liberty now. What should constrain me? I don't need to be constrained. I've got liberty. I can do all things. All things are possible for me, one translation says. And that's them. And then Paul says in response, 1 Corinthians 6, 12, but not all things are beneficial. And then repeats it again. All things are possible for me. But he says, but not all things are constructive. Not all things build up. The King James says, not all things are edifying. 
So in your selfishness and in your division, don't, don't do that. You're not displaying the character of God. Now, he says that in chapter 6 and then repeats it again in chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 23 says the same thing that 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12 says. So I'm going to quote you guys again. Everything is permissible because I'm in Christ. As long as it's not overt sin, then I'm allowed, to, I'm allowed to do it. Yeah, but there are things that are not overt sin that still might harm somebody else. It's not overt sin for you to eat that meat, but it might harm somebody else. So there's a greater thing here, says Paul. Love your brother or sister. Don't allow your knowledge to puff you up such that you insist on imposing this now. Be willing to give it up. Be willing to sacrifice. And when you're willing to do that, when you're willing to show love, you're glorifying God. You're displaying the character of, of God. And so he makes that whole argument from 8, 9, and 10. And when he comes to the end of it, then he says, therefore, so whether you eat or drink, you see the eat part, why we're talking about eating? Because it goes all the way back to chapter 8. Should I eat this meat that's been previously offered to an idol in the pagan temple? Whether you do or you don't, make sure you're doing it to the glory of God. So in, in that case, that means there might be situations where it would be okay for you to eat the meat and other cases where it would not be, depending on who you're with. And some of you are just getting a tingle down your spine right now. It's just scaring you to death what I just said. Because that sounds like relativism. And you're the pastor, and you're supposed to give me an absolute dictate on how this is supposed to go. Do I eat the meat or not? But see, Paul gives you principles that you've got to apply, and I have to apply. And so you have to apply, you have to apply that love principle. That's not situation ethics. Some of you have heard of situation ethics. Another way to think of it, a better way to think of it, a right way to think of it, is what one guy, John Jefferson Davis, called contextual absolutism. That you have the absolute. You have the absolute principle, but then you apply the absolute principle in various contexts. And so if two, peop you know, two people like Paul get together and they have the full knowledge that it's just meat and their conscience is not bothered by the fact that this was previously offered in sacrifice to an idol, then they can have the meal together. But it might be for somebody else we don't do that. But whether we do or not, is dictated by the character of God, and in particular in that context, showing love to, to others. And so that should help you a bit to determine when it is that I coerce and when it is that I concede. When something is a matter of truth, righteousness, that can harm the other person, then don't concede. If that's the case with your child, don't concede. If it's a matter of truth, if it's a matter of righteousness, then don't concede for their sake. Not for your convenience, for their sake. But if it's not a matter of truth, if it's not a matter of righteousness, but rather a matter of convenience, then there's always the possibility of yielding that. To put it another way, truth cannot yield. Righteousness cannot yield. Love is willing to yield. 
And that all displays the character of God. And your objective and my objective and God's objective for us in our lives is for us to display what kind of God He is, the character of God, including in our relationships. So page 8, this passage, 1 Corinthians 10, presents a radical view of conflict that encourages us to look at conflict as an opportunity to, okay, glorify God, which you have already penciled in, means to display His character. Conflict always provides an opportunity to glorify God, that is to bring Him praise and honor Him by showing who He is, what He's like, what He's doing. The best way to glorify God in the midst of conflict is to depend on and draw attention to His grace, that is the undeserved love, mercy, forgiveness, strength, and wisdom He gives through Christ. You can do this several ways. So when you trust God, you're glorifying God. Now, how is that displaying the character of God when you trust God? Well, part of the character of God is we've talked about His love, but that's only part of His character, right? Another part of the character of God is that God is sovereign. God is in complete control of His creation. So if you believe that, then it should engender trust. And when you trust God then, you're displaying in your life the fact that you believe that God is that. That God is sovereign. He's in control. But He's not just sovereign and in control because that would be, that could be terrifying if it wasn't coupled with this other thing that the Bible says He is. God is sovereign and God is good. And the Bible teaches that too. And you get lots of Christians who get pieces and snatches of the character of God. You know, I know God is sovereign. I had a guy that I talked to years ago and he was having a problem he was trying to deal with. He's sitting across the desk and he just said many times as he was telling me the problem, you know, I, I, know, God is, I know God is sovereign. You know, I know God is sovereign. He kept telling him that, and of course, himself that. And of course, he's right. But he was kind of having to grit his teeth as he said it. And I reminded him in that meeting, I said, hey, you're right, God is sovereign, but I want to remind you, brother, God is good too. And in the way he exercises his sovereignty for his people, he does it for our good. That is Romans 8, 28, is it not? That God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So these character qualities of God, yes, he's love, he's sovereign, so I can trust him. And I can trust him because he's good. And then top of page nine, you can obey God in the midst of the conflict. And when I obey God, I'm glorifying God. Why? Because I'm, I'm demonstrating His authority. I'm demonstrating that He makes the rules. You can imitate God. That's glorifying God, obviously, because it's displaying, it's, it's, it's showing, it's mimicking. In fact, that's actually the Greek word used there to imitate God <clears throat> back in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, is to mimic God is to try to reflect God as accurately as possible. And then you acknowledge God. You're acknowledging God's power in this situation. You're not acknowledging God's omniscience in this situation. That God is at work. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. Look carefully at that verse. It is God who works in you to will and to act. Now, who's willing and acting there? It's you. 
sometimes if you read that fast, it, you, you, you take that that God is, is willing and acting. But it's saying you are willing and acting. And God's working in you <laughs> so that you will and act according to what he wants done. Similar passage in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 29, Colossians 1, 29, where Paul says that I struggle, the Greek word is agonizo, I agonize with all of his energy, which so powerfully works in me. So it's Paul who's doing this, but it's God who's doing it through him. And that's what that passage is saying. So when I'm in conflict, my goal is to glorify God, is to display the character of God. And that's, a, that's obviously a huge topic. And, and what the Bible reveals about our God is, is vast. And so the more we know about God, and the more we practice then emulating the character of God, reflecting Him back to Him as we were made to do, we are creatures made in His image for that, then the better we will be at this. So conflict provides opportunity to glorify God. And that's what you want to do. And, and the rest of these could be subsumed instead of being parallel. You see, that's Roman numeral one, and then they got Roman numeral two and three. But these could be actually subordinate to that because everything's subordinate to glorifying God. But grow to be like Christ. Conflict often exposes sinful attitudes and habits in our lives. So you can see how that's related to bringing glory to God. If I want to reflect the character of God, if I want to display the character of God, then that means I want to rid myself of those things that obscure that. And sin does that very thing. Sin obscures the reflection of Christ, distorts the reflection of Christ. And so I want ways, I should want ways that come into my life to expose those things so that I can then get rid of them and display Christ more clearly. So it exposes sinful attitudes and habits, but secondly, it offers opportunity to practice new attitudes and habits. So the Bible is not in the business of just making you feel guilty. Guys like me are. <laughs> Preachers are. And too often we do that. I mean, I'm joking, but, but God's not in the habit, and we shouldn't be either, in the habit of just leaving us feeling guilty. The purpose for pointing out, exposing the sinful attitudes and habits in our lives is not to put a period on it. Well, there you are. Look at you. One big fat sack of sin. That is you. And God's just described it, and he puts a period on it and leaves it at that. If he does that, we're in a world of hurt. But thanks be to God, he doesn't. He never does. God tells you what to put off, and he tells you what to put on. So in Ephesians chapter 4, you get both of those. And if all you got was the put off, then you'd just be looking at it and you'd be saying, woe is me all the time. But instead, it's yes, Lord, you're right. Those are the kinds of attitudes and those are the kinds of words and those are the kinds of actions that I'm tempted toward and that I do and that I need to put off. What do I replace them with? And so the Bible teaches what some have called the replacement principle, put off, put on. Grow to be like Christ. It's an opportunity in conflict to do that. And it's an opportunity to serve others. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Don't want to see a show of hands. How many of you have ever done that? 
can bring yourself to do that. Enemies. So Jesus says, love your enemies. So it was years ago, I'm showing how old I am, but it was Joan Baez. Anybody know who Joan Baez? Okay. Guitar, folk singer. And she says, I remember hearing her say this. She says, Jesus says, love your enemies. But Gandhi said, we have no enemies. And Ken says, Gandhi's an idiot. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but I mean, don't, we live in a fallen world. There's conflict. There's difficulty. If, if a good God made the world that we have, then a fallen element has been introduced into it. True? Because <laughs> it ain't now what it was made to be. And so God is remaking it. And he will completely refashion it in the future, but in the meantime, it's a fallen world, and it's replete with these kinds of things, including, yeah, conflict and enemies. So get real, Joan. Is she still alive? Anyone know? All right. But Jesus says, love your enemies, because there really are enemies. And if you're a Christian, there may very well be people who hate you, and curse you, mistreat you. We see that in the Bible, we see that through the history of God's church. And, but it's hard, man. It is hard <laughs> to love people who mistreat you. It's hard to pray for people who mistreat you. Hard for me. But Jesus says that's what we do. It's an opportunity to serve others. God may use you to help your opponent. So pray for that. Lord, use me then. Somehow, I can't see how you're going to open a door for this. He may not. It's God's sovereign choice. But Lord, I would be delighted to be used as your instrument in the life of this other person. I didn't read it, but back on page 8 at the top, it has Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. Romans 12, 18. And Romans 12, 18 is worded there in a way that it suggests that conflict cannot always be resolved because in order to have reconciliation, both parties have to participate. So Romans 12, 18 says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you. You see, it also depends on the other person and the other person may not cooperate. And if they don't cooperate, we're not going to have reconciliation but even if we don't have reconciliation, you can be right with the Lord by what it is you do and the attitude you have and the approach you take. So serve others. Ask God to use you to help your opponent. God may use you to bear your opponent's burden. God may use you to lovingly confront your opponent. Top of page 10. God may use you to introduce your opponent to Jesus Christ. He may use you to teach by your example. So lots of ways that God can use you to serve, to serve others. Now, I recommend you just keep that list handy and that you use it when you're in conflict and try to think about the person on the other side that way. I want reconciliation. I can't make reconciliation happen. 
but I want reconciliation. I want to be used as an instrument of that, and so Lord, use me in these ways, whether the other person ever cooperates or, or not. And I also urge you to keep that in front of you, not only when you're in conflict, but when you're just having personal, internal turmoil of whatever type. Keep in front of you the idea that God has made you to serve other people. Because one of the worst things we can do when we are having trouble, even if it's not trouble with somebody else, when we are having difficulty, when we're struggling, one of the worst things we can do is internalize. And that's what we, are, that's what we most often do. We, we turn into ourselves rather than outward toward other people. So I often get people who come and say, I'm having problems, I'm depressed, I'm down, I'm in a funk. So we start to talk about that, and one of the things I recommend that they do is to move outward rather than strictly inward. Begin serving other people. And when you do that, when you serve other people now, it keeps you from just brooding about everything that's happening in your own life. So this idea of serving and keeping that at the fore of your thinking is something that we need for conflict, but it's also we, conflict with other people, but conflict within ourselves as well. And then one last thing, and we'll be done for, for today. And that is, remember I was saying, are these matters of conviction, are these matters of, of preference? So let me give you some thoughts, some further thoughts about that, and then we'll be finished. But when you impose something on someone else, when you have as your purpose and your goal, remember conflict is a difference in purpose or goals. So when you establish a purpose or goal and you're trying to decide whether or not, whether or not I should push this or goal or adjust it or not, concede or coerce, then make sure you're using a proper standard of righteousness. It's not necessary for everybody to be like me. Everybody that I'm in relationship with doesn't have to do things the same way I do. And it's not a matter of sin and righteousness as to whether or not people do them the way I do. You say, oh, well, duh, that's obvious. Well, no, it's not obvious to a lot of people. There are a lot of people who it's got to be done just so. And when it's not done just so, then they convince themselves that I'm only acting in this person's best interest by showing them the light that life would be so much better for them if they did it this way. And, and if you think I'm, I know it's not, but I am not kidding. People do that. People who have that kind of personality, that kind of mentality that everything is detailed in, in a particular way can impose that and can impose it as a standard of righteousness. You have to do it this way. And I'm doing you a favor by showing you that you should do it this way. Make sure you're using a proper standard of righteousness. It's not necessary for everybody to be like me or to do it like me. Using ourselves as a standard comes perilously close to idolatry. That ups the ante, doesn't it? I mean, if I'm the standard, really, the way I do stuff is the standard? 
And so think about how you operate at home. Think about how you operate at work. Do you require that of people? If so, you're coming perilously close to that. The goal is Christ-likeness, not uniformity. You see, Christ, play on words, but Christ likes diversity. And that's why he puts diverse people together. That's why when you got married, you realized, oh, that opposite attracts thing really is the deal, isn't it? But, but God likes that. God likes diversity. He puts male and female together. There's some diversity right there, okay? Don't get me started on that, okay? Because I could get killed. So. But, you know, right? Diversity just between husband and wife, men and women, male and female. Diversity within the church and all the backgrounds. God, and this is God's idea. God likes that. So the goal is not uniformity. It never was. It's Christ-likeness. All right. Yes, I heard that. I'm going to pray. <laughs> and uh, everyone thanks you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessing of today. It is the Lord's Day. First day of the week. Uh, the risen Lord is on the throne. And we celebrate that, and we're able to open your book and learn therein. Thank you for our worship hour and the opportunity to praise you in song, give back to you, learn of you. Thank you for this hour and what you have told us in your word about the need to reflect you back to you and to reflect you in all of the circumstances into which you place us. And that includes all of the relationships we have and the inevitable conflicts that arise in them. Lord, help us to be people who place you as our priority and that we desire to please you then and we're willing to concede, we're willing to sacrifice, we're willing to give things up for a larger cause and you are always that larger cause. Help us to practice that now this afternoon and this week and the various stations to which you've assigned us and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.